Also, the writing was kind of on the wall because one of the leading contenders, uh, Ian Nipomniak. I'm sorry, what is his name, Gordon? Nip, nip, Nipomniak. I'm sorry, what is his name, Gordon? <laughs> Nipomniachi. Okay, sure. Nipomniachi. Yeah. <laughs> I think. <laughs> March 27th, 2020, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Lally Quell, contributing editor at Dutch News and stuck-at-home person, and with me today is my fellow contributing editor at Dutch News, Gordon Derrick, and fellow stuck-at-home person. Not with us today is Paul Peters, who is not stuck-at-home, so he's not joining us. Um, How has Paul been let out into the world? I don't know. Somebody let Paul out of the house, and that seems like a very dangerous thing to me. That's a very bad calculation, especially as he's from Brabant. Yeah, he's from Brabant, and they're letting him out. Paul got a call very late last night. He was supposed to to be virtually joining us, and then got a call very late last night that one of his 57 side hustle jobs needed him to come in today. And of course, he's been out of work for two weeks, so he needs the money. So uh, we let him shrug off, and hopefully we will. Uh, Gordon and I can, can keep it together ourselves, although I have, I have doubts about that. No, me too. Very strong doubts. But we wish him all the best and hope he doesn't uh, go out and kill too many people. Uh, so how have, how have you been? How are things over in uh, your blanket fort in, uh, in The Hague? Well, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, you call me a stuck-at-home person, but that is really no change from my, my everyday life. So I just feel like um, my, my lifestyle has suddenly become fashionable and I'm seriously thinking about a career change as a lifestyle guru. <laughs> um, but, but, and also, I'm having, I've got a much better social life now. Yeah, you were mentioning this before we started recording. Yeah, because everyone else is home and everyone is starting to set, set up, like, you know, um, conference calls by Zoom and they're doing pub quizzes and, like, group chats. I think this is great, you know. Now everyone lives like me. They suddenly want me to join in. There you go. It's lovely. Well, that's good. So, I mean, I'm glad that you were finding some, positives. some positivity in these uh, in these dark times. Uh, have there been any positives for you of, um, of, of, of the restriction measures? Um, no, I think this week was worse for me than last week. Last week sort of felt very exciting. And this week has started to like, I think the drudgery kind of of everything has sort of started to settle in. Um, so I don't, I think that this week, this week has been worse. Um, I think it's been a lot of like 12, 14 hour days for me. So I'm also like really tired. And so Paul has started us off with some, uh, some, some OPEF. It is Corona related, um, but it is fairly amusing. It is. It is fairly good Corona OPEF. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll start with that. Um, because the government obviously, as we know, announced, uh, um, some very strict new measures this week in its fight against the spread of the coronavirus. Um, that was announced, um, Mark Rutter and Justice Minister Fed Copperhouse in a press conference. And I've got to say, this has now looked like a masterstroke, Mark Rutter appointing a Bond villain as Justice Minister, because when Fed Copperhouse says, stay in your house, you stay in your house. Oh my gosh. I mean, it, it's, he, he totally <laughs> looks like a, it's so impressive how much of a Bond villain he looks like. It's insane. Anyway, yeah, but, but, but um, Coming back to the rules, one of these new rules is that groups of more than three people are no longer allowed to gather in public and people have to stay one and a half meters away from each other, unless as members of your own family or household. Uh, and while most people are following the rules and guidelines, there are still some who ignore them. Um, and one group of people who can tell you all about that are the operators of the emergency number, because since the new measures were introduced, people have been dialing 112 in their hundreds to report to snitch on people who are, who are gathering in groups of more than three. And the, it's got to the point where the police have actually put out statements telling people not to call the emergency 112 line for that when it's meant to be for, you know, things like your house being on fire or 
what your neighbour having a heart attack. Uh, we understand people want to report this, but this is not what 112 is meant for, the police said in a statement. They have said there's, go there's going to be, um, like I set up a special um, uh, place, uh, a meltpunt, as they say in Dutch, so like kind of reporting, uh, usually kind of online reporting system for corona violations. And two municipalities in Permanent and Beemster have introduced a special click line, so a kind of snitch line, so you can ring them up and, uh, and, and report anybody who is gathering in groups of four. Uh, civilians can report all the illegally sized groups in the special Gemeente app, which will be sent automatically to the nearest BOA. And I suppose we should explain to our listeners who don't know what a BOA is. Um, how would you sum that up, Molly? Um, the BOA is sort of like knockoff cops, I think. They're like kind of these like, the like traffic wardens and like that kinds of stuff. Like the people who aren't like real police officers, but kind of deal with these like minor sort of, dis you know, disagreements or like minor violations, that kind of thing. Yeah, there's sort of, sort of exceptional officials that translates as doesn't, doesn't it roughly? So like, you know, basically kind of, basically kind of empowered busybodies, I think is a, bit, is a good translation as well. Yes. Yeah. Empowered busybodies is also a, also a good way to put it. You were you were really <laughs> on a tear against uh, these lovely civil servants who are on the front lines fighting the f good fight against uh, against this impending global pandemic. So I think this is kind of a fine line to be drawn between. It is obviously an important job, and uh, it is important that people stay apart. On the other hand, the, the, there is a certain type of person who, who who is first in the queue to apply for these kind of positions. Yes, that's and, true. So, you know, and <laughs> and I think that was more what I was uh, what, what, what I was really against, rather than the the, the idea that they exist at all. This week, some news other than Corona happened, but first we're going to start out with this whole global pandemic thing, and then we will bring you some political and legal news, and we even managed to drum up an animal story. All right, Gordon, talk to us about the latest Corona numbers. That's where we're going to start. Okay, so 434 people have now died from coronavirus in the Netherlands. That's according to the figures that were published on Thursday by the public health agency RIVM. The total number of positive tests rose by more than 1,000 for the first time to 7,491, although the actual number of infections is likely to be several times higher. So far, 2,161 people have been admitted to hospital and 761 patients are in intensive care. The RIVM said this week, however, that the number of hospital admissions appeared to be levelling off and Health Minister Hugo de Jonge said 1,600 intensive care beds will be available by the beginning of April to cope with the demand. How close are we to the um, intensive care bed limit, Gordon? This is the number that everybody's sort of been saying is the, is the most important number to focus on. Yeah, this is a question that people are increasingly asking because we've seen, of course, that uh, what's been happening in Italy and Spain when they run out of intensive care beds and it's a catastrophe. The basic capacity in the Netherlands is 800 beds, but some of these are taken up by people with other conditions. So the available number uh, a week ago was 575. So we're already over that limit. But another, another 350 beds have been made available. And by April the 1st, which is next Wednesday, uh, the number will rise to 1600. Uh, and of those, 1150 will be reserved for corona patients. Uh, some patients are being transferred from Brabant, which is obviously the hardest hit part of the country, to other areas like Groningen, which so far have been relatively unaffected. But Diederich Kommers, the head of the National Intensive Care Association, told the parliamentary committee this week that uh, there was a lack of national direction. And he also said he was worried that intensive care admissions were rising faster than expected and they could run out of beds as soon as Sunday if it carries on at its present level, which is because they're taking on more than 100 intensive care patients a day at the moment. So is there any good news here? 
Um, there are glimmers of um, possible hope. Yap from Dissel, the head of RVM, said there were signs the infection rate was falling. Uh, they've, they've been uh, analysing new patients who are admitted to hospital and asking when they first get symptoms. And on the basis of that, they've calculated uh, how quickly the infection is spreading from person to person. Van Dissel said it looked as if the number of people infected by each patient, um, which a virologist called the R0 number, had fallen from two to one. When it gets below one, you're no longer talking in terms of exponential growth. But he did warn that if the shutdown measures were lifted too soon, the virus will rapidly spread again within the community. So it's kind of, he's cautiously, I wouldn't say optimistic, but he's saying it looks, there are signs that it's heading in the right direction. That's good, I hope. Um, I also saw this week that I'm not, it wasn't clear to me if the Intensive Care Association had released new information or if someone had just found the existing protocols for what happens if you have too many people for the number of intensive care beds that's not happened in the Netherlands yet? They haven't had to make decisions. Um, and so people have been very understandably upset because, of course, if you have too many intensive care beds or if you have too many patients and not enough intensive care beds, somebody has to start making decisions about who gets those beds. And, you know, the decisions are not great ones to make, as we've been sort of hearing or as you know from any Um, any person who's ever worked in sort of a trauma situation that you kind of have to make really, really terrible choices. Yeah, you basically basically have to tell, you have to decide the patient who needs intensive care does not get an intensive care bed. Right. So some, you're basically making the decisions whether or not somebody is going to live or die. And you have to make those decisions. You know, they have kind of set out a bunch of criteria. And of course, one of the, the choices that doctors make in this situation is to try to save the people who are most likely to survive, which means essentially letting older people not have access to the space that younger people could take because the older people are less likely to survive the virus, even with um, access to intensive care. So that is not a great way to have to feel about life, man. No, absolutely not. Yeah, and obviously it is. Yeah, there are a number of factors I think they mentioned. Well, one of which obviously is the, is the age of the patient. But obviously, if people have underlying health conditions, things like uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, that was an effect. You see, it's basically I think they they look at who's got the best chance of coming out of intensive care. You know, actually getting through intensive care, which in the case of uh, Corona can last for three weeks or even a month. So. um there is some kind of lighthearted news about the havoc that's being wreaked by Corona, though, Gordon, isn't there? Uh, well, yeah, um, especially in uh, one community um, in, well, I say in the Netherlands, because Bala Nassau, uh, also known as Bala Hertog, is kind of half in the Netherlands and half in Belgium. It's famously divided up higgledy-piggledy between the two countries. It's kind of a legacy of um, how parcels of land were owned by, um, by aristocrats back in the day. Yeah. Uh, the border runs through streets, houses and shops. And in some shops, that means there are different coronavirus restrictions within the same premises. So a customer at the local Zeeman store said he wanted to buy a couple of night shirts. But the assistant told him he couldn't have them because they were in Belgium. And in Belgium, the shops are closed. And to prove it, the Belgian section of the store was marked off with police tape. So, yeah, so, so a very kind of visual, yeah, I guess, representation of uh, the, the, the start of the different rules running in different countries. Uh, the Belgians have also been blocking off border roads with concrete slabs, and that's mainly to stop the Dutch driving across for the cheap petrol. Of course. But that's been, uh, yeah, that's been, and, and some Dutch motorists, I think, have been fined like 4,000 euros in Belgium because of, for, for trying to uh, save a couple of cents at the, uh, um, at the petrol pump. So that hasn't worked out for them. Um, there's one village uh, called Philippine, um, or Filipina, um, where this is a particular problem because the only asphalted road into their village goes through Belgium. Uh, and now that's blocked off, the alternative is what one local called a very bumpy track, or, although to be fair, it is probably still smoother than the Belgian motorway. 
Oh, Gordon, even in times of global pandemic, you can't help but taking a shot at Belgian roads. I love it. Oh, dear. So I um, I reported on this story in the uh, about in, in Barla Nassau this week. And so I had called up Zeman and I talked to their spokesperson. And actually, because the entrance to the Zeman is in the Netherlands, the way the regulations work is, is that they really actually only have to adhere to the Dutch rules. But they you know, they wanted to sort of be as good of Belgian, you know, sort of residents as they could. So this was the kind of compromise that they came up with when the when the border things was shut down. And the spokeswoman said to me, like, you know, this is a crazy solution, but these are crazy times. So I thought that that was very uh, fitting. Uh, so speaking of regulations, the government announced new measures to combat the coronavirus on Monday in a press conference. The measures include a ban on all gatherings until the 1st of June, with exceptions for funerals and religious gatherings with fewer than 30 people, and only if the 1.5-meter distance rule can be kept. People are now advised to stay home as much as possible and only leave the house for work or to care for other people. Going out for a walk to get some fresh air is allowed, but groups larger than three are not allowed, and a distance of 1.5 meters should be kept. This rule was put in place because many people ignored it the distance requirements when they visited parks and other recreation areas last weekend during the nice weather. People who do not stick to the rules can now be fined 400 euros. No more than three visitors should be at your house, and it's only if you can keep 1.5 meters apart, which in most Dutch houses is not possible. And so no circle parties, as I uh, gleefully tweeted. An important new measure is, is that when any family member is sick, the entire family has to stay home. Um, that's the exception of, with the exception of people working in essential professions, so medical providers. Additionally, shops and public transport have to take measures to ensure that people remain 1.5 meters apart. Companies who do not stick to those rules can be fined 4,000 euros. All previous measures remain in place as well. Um, an extended list of all the measures and rules can be found on dutchnews.nl, as well as an overview of all of the corona-related information in English that's published by the government. So we'll link to all of that stuff in the liner notes if you have questions, if you want further information. Yeah, uh, there's been a bit of confusion about uh, the rules, particularly the, uh, the, the, uh, the dates until which they apply, right? There's There seems to be a lot of confusion. Um, some of which I think is is well-founded, some of which seems to be ridiculous. Uh, Zondag met Lubach, if anybody watches that, did a great skit about this uh, this weekend and how you have to stay 1.5 meters away from each other. A lot of people were confused uh, by the 1st of June date. Um, everybody thought all measures, such as closes of schools and restaurants, was extended to this date, but that's not the case. That's only gatherings that require special permits, like festivals, King's Day celebrations, and other events. Um, all of the other measures are currently in place until April 6th, although it's extremely likely that that date is going to be extended. Um, the decision to ban events until the 1st of June was made because of logistical and organizational reasons. Um, organizing such events required a lot of work and planning in advance. So for many people, including journalists, it wasn't clear that there was a strong distinction between events and other measures. Mark Ritta acknowledged that this had not gone well in the press conference and had sort of said that part of the reason that things were unclear is that this particular press conference, they had four people speaking at it. People quite realized how confusing the press conference on Monday was going to be with four people at it. And they said, going forward, they're not going to do that anymore. So I think the government is learning as it goes um, about making communication mistakes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're having to make decisions at speed and they're not going to get it right first time. And I think the, the press conference on Monday as well, I think they were really, uh, the, their focus was very much on just really enforcing the measures and hammering home the message to people. And maybe because they were, they had that kind of emphasis on real kind of force and telling people, you know, Ruta was really, really angry. I've rarely seen him that angry. Yeah, he was pissed. 
he, yeah, he was. He was like a, like a headmaster saying, "I'm very disappointed in you all." You know, he, he's, found, he's found a group of teenagers drinking behind the bike sheds again. Said, "Right, that's it. No more messing around. There's going to be hard, hard. There's going to be stiff consequences if you don't um, if if you don't toe the line." I think because there was so much, uh, they, they were so um, determined to put that message across, they didn't think so much about the other aspects of the presentation, and particularly this whole question of when the deadlines apply. I mean, I know a lot of parents are talking about when are my, my children going to back to, go back to school on April the sixth because that is still officially um, the, the, what they're working towards but it just seems absolutely implausible that kids are going to be going to back to school in 10 days from now and yet until they actually say what the next deadline is people are kind of left hanging. So we do know when they will say this right because there will be a press conference on the 31st of March to, ex- to discuss the extension. I mean I will eat my hat on the next podcast if they do not extend the school closing deadlines on the 31st of March. There's no way kids are going back to school. Um, Part of the reason that I think that is that this year's central school leaving exams due to start on May 7th have already been canceled. That was announced by Education Minister Ari Slob on Tuesday. Schools will now have to award their final marks to school leavers on the basis of coursework and exams organized by the schools themselves. The main secondary school organizations had already called on the government to scrap the exam, saying it would be impossible to organize them in a safe way. Uh, The minister said he would soon announce what the options are for people who fail their school leaving certificates and need to do resets. Again, you know, they're trying to figure this out as they go and they just, you know, are working, I think, with the best information that they um, that they possibly can. It's a situation very much uh, constantly in flux. And have we got any indications yet of uh, what kind of impact the coronavirus might have on the economy? Uh, it's, it is, it is no bueno. Worst case scenario, it could plunge the Dutch economy into a deep depression with GDP declining by 7.7%. That's according to the government's macroeconomic think tank, the CPB. The CPB has analyzed four scenarios for the impact of the coronavirus on the economy in 2020 and 2021. That's based on the durations of the restrictions on physical contact. Um, All four scenarios result in recession, with GDP declining uh, between 1.2 and 7.7% in 2020. Um, under three of the four scenarios, the economic shutdown will be more severe than the 28-29 crisis when GDP fell by 3.7%. In the mildest scenario, unemployment will increase only slightly in 2021, um, but in the most serious, it's projected to increase to 9.4%. The Dutch unemployment rate is currently hovering around 3%. It is not looking very good for the for the for, for this year or next year. And a lot of this is also related to the fact that we don't know how things are going to go in other countries because of course, you know, we exist in a global economy. So, you know, bad news out of the US for example could mean bad economic news here in the Netherlands. We just don't know yet. The government has announced a, a package of stimulus measures to try and keep small businesses and large, and even large businesses afloat. Um, and they say they've got enough money. And the, the upside, of course, is that in the last couple of years they've done very well. They run budget surpluses, so they have money to spend. And I think Vopka Huxler said that he's released 15 to 20, million, 20 billion euros in the first instance, and they've got enough capacity to do that one or two more times. If it goes runs beyond that, that's when, yeah, um, you start getting into really serious trouble. Uh, the we're, we're, of course, recording this on Friday morning, and sometime on Friday afternoon they are expected to announce a package of measures um, for Zeze payers, which I think uh, quite a few of our listeners are. So um, they'll be, we'll, of course, be reporting on that on the Dutch news site, but it won't make it into the podcast because that uh, will happen after we are finished recording. The World Health Organization Director General Tedros Anaham Ghebreyesus, my apologies to him for butchering his name, has said several times that testing, testing, testing is key to public health efforts as well as individual concerns. So what is going on with testing in the Netherlands? 
So first, the RIVM, that's the Dutch National Institute for Public Health, is not testing everyone. Quote, at the moment, tests are being carried out on people with serious symptoms so that healthcare workers know if they have coronavirus or not and how they should be treated. That's according to Chantal Ruskin, who is a virologist with the Institute. Essentially, if you're not a healthcare worker or in a special facility like a nursing home, or if you're not basically being hospitalized with symptoms, you are not going to be tested. According to the RIVM's protocol, because the infection is very mild in approximately 80% of the people with COVID-19 and there is limited testing capacity, a restrictive testing policy applies. Outside of the hospital, testing patients with complaints and symptoms appropriate to COVID-19 has no added value for individual patient care. It does not change the treatment policy. So what that basically means is, is that whether you have corona or not, your prognosis and your like what you should be doing, which is staying home, resting, you know, consuming lots of fluids, it does not matter. Um, so this is why they're saying in part that they are not um, that they're not testing. Yeah, but it, it is a different picture from in um, other countries. Right. And that's attracted a lot of uh, commentary. Yes. Uh, so doctors in Germany um, decide who to test and the guidelines are not as strict as in the Netherlands. There they have carried out more than 200,000 tests. Um, and in places like South Korea and Hong Kong, testing is like super extensive. Um, Iceland apparently has tested every single person that's living on Iceland. Of course, that's only about, what, 800,000 people. So it's like a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, different policies, different countries. Everybody sort of has a different approach to how, how they are doing testing. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, why aren't the te Dutch testing so much? And is there any talk about uh, increasing the capacity? Here we go. So the RIVM says that they're not testing so much because of limited testing capacity. The testing capacity in the Netherlands is about 9,000 a day. Um, that's spread across 34 different labs, according to the RIVM. Um, I will note that that number is likely to change, possibly even by the time this podcast comes out, because, of course, they're working on increasing testing capacity. The shortage is not of people or machinery, but of basic lab equipment, such as pipettes and test tube racks, as well as key chemicals to break open cells during the test itself. A microbiologist named Alex Friedrich, um, who's at the University of Groningen's Medical Center, um, has said, quote, I never understood why people keep insisting that this is the case. We don't have a problem with capacity. Sometimes a particular lab has shortage of particular materials, but that's business as usual and you can fix that. He said that in an interview with the Groene Amsterdamer this week. Meanwhile, Health Minister Hugo de Jonge has insisted that there are limits to the number of tests. Um, he said this also at the press conference this week, um, and he has been a real unhappy with Friedrich's comments. Um, so that uh, interview that was in uh, the Groene Amsterdamer sort of sparked a lot of discussion about what the Dutch's problem is with testing. Um, Friedrich was also quoted in a story by Dutch investigative journalist outlet Follow the Money, which looked into this whole sort of testing situation. They found that there is a particular material, a liquid called a lysis buffer, that's used in tests. It's produced by a Swiss pharmaceutical company, Rocher. Rocher apparently is struggling to get producers to make this, but the liquid is a proprietary thing, so it doesn't seem to be willing to give up the process as to how you do it. They refused to answer follow the money when they asked if they would like sort of turn over this proprietary information. Um, there also seems to be an issue with what's called vendor lock-in. So you know how when you buy a printer, you have to get ink cartridges from the same company. 
That is vendor lock-in. Um, and this is the same with testing equipment. Uh, apparently, because a lot of Dutch labs use Rocher machines, they have to use Rocher equipment, and Rocher is having supply chain problems. Now, before you go off with your pitchforks and torches to Rocher, nearly every lab person that was interviewed in this Follow the Money story, which we will link to in the liner notes, has said that there are other shortages for testing too. It's not just about Rocher. Um, Basically, labs were not totally prepared for this sort of once in a hundred years global pandemic event. There was also some discussion in this Follow the Money article about how um, you can sort of do a DIY of this like testing material, but apparently it's like quite difficult. Um, so the question is really becoming whether or not this is a thing that's worth labs trying to um, spend a lot of time and effort on making their own version of it. Yeah, but that did spark a lot of um, political uh, discussion as well, with even within Parliament where a lot of the parties, uh, parties like Hoon Links, um, were um, calling for the government to force Rocher basically to hand over um, the, 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 um, the, the prescription for making these TED labs so that um, Dutch companies could do it themselves. Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, discussion about that. And the government has said it's not prepared to do that because that would damage its credibility uh, on the open market. Yeah, you sort of have to remember kind of that the government, you know, I think a lot of people were very annoyed with this response, but I do think that you have to remember that in countries where they have a tendency where there is a national crisis to just start nationalizing stuff, it's really hard to then have, after that national crisis is over, relationships with um, companies that operate in countries outside of your own, because people are very rightly afraid that if like something happens, you're just going to start nationalizing things. Um, so I sort of understand the government's hesitation about this. Um, I will also note that Friedrich, this guy who gave the interview to the Groene Amsterdamer, he is at the teaching hospital in Groningen. Um, the four northern provinces, Groningen, Drenthe, Friesland, and Overijssel, are actually planning to step up their testing rate for COVID-19. They are departing from the national policy of only testing patients with when they start to show symptoms. Now, what's important to note here is that the north has had relatively few cases of corona. Um, so there it is still possible to do what is called contact tracing where public health officials can investigate who people have who people who have the virus have had contact with. In places like Brabant, the disease is so widespread that this is just like no longer feasible to do. Also, it appears that the public health system in the north of the Netherlands is and or was ordering their testing kits from different suppliers. It seems that in particular, this hospital in Groningen had made a big effort to sort of diversify their vendors. Um, so it's possible. So that means that they just have more testing kits available with fewer people infected. It's just easier to do mass testing there, which is just not possible to do um, in the rest of the country. Um, and of course, I will also note that because, you know, Corona is a worldwide pandemic, now everybody from every country in the world is trying to get their hands on all of these testing materials. So it's not just a matter of like, you just have to switch to the vendor that the Groningen hospital was using. It's that, you know, they had like, had been able to stockpile things a little bit faster when the news really started um, coming out about this. Yeah, and of course, as you say, we go back to this question of vendor lock-in, so that it's not quite, it's not as simple as, um, it's not like the, the hospitals in Brabant going to send their samples up to Konya because Konya isn't, they're not compatible with the equipment, the equipment that they've got in Konya. Yeah. Well, and also a lot of people were saying, um, and a lot of people that I talked to have said, it's not just this one particular liquid from this one particular company, that there's like a number of different things required in the testing process that people are having shortages of, um, and that you just can't, you know, back, you know, a lot of this stuff is on back order. A lot of the 
facilities that manufacture it are located in China, which of course has been on like an extensive lockdown for two months. So it's not so much a simple fix of just like, we're really mad at this one Swiss company and we should just steal their proprietary information and everything is going to be better. There's just like multiple sort of supply chain kind of problems. I think, you know, it's quite possible that had the epicenter of the outbreak in the Netherlands been in Groningen and not in Brabant, we would just be having a very different conversation about this because they're, they're, uh, they also would have been overwhelmed with the amount of tests that they were able yeah. to do. Uh, so what, what is the testing capacity? That's the other question, big question. Yeah. That is a... That is a great question. Um, So when the outbreak started, there were two places in the country that could do these tests. Now there are nearly 40. The latest numbers are that the Dutch um, have conducted around 50,000 tests and they can now do a bit more than 10,000 per day. Um, The 9,000 number that I used at the top of this segment had come from a story on Tuesday and I, they had said that they were kind of increasing about um, a thousand a day. Uh, per day. So I'm like kind of extrapolating this number a little bit. That was like kind of the last time that I had talked to RIVM was uh, sort of yesterday. So they were saying they thought it was going to be a bit more than 10,000 per day today. So it's somewhere around. I do kind of detect in the last couple of days, the tone of the conversation has changed a bit more that initially uh, the Dutch were being quite defensive about the number of tests that they were doing. And the health minister was even, you know, sort of um, uh, getting upset with uh, Alex Krieger's up in Kronian saying, you know, we don't want you doing more tests in the rest of the country. We want to have a uniform policy across the country. It feels as if in the last few days they are starting to um, talk about increasing the testing capacity and looking for ways to have more labs and actually to look more towards trying to find ways to apply the Kroningen practices in the rest of the country rather than the other way about. I kind of feel like the government is um, leaning more towards trying to do more testing than they've done in the past, whereas in the, in the beginning, or not so much in the beginning, but in the second phase of the outbreak, they said, we're not going to do more testing because there's no point. And I think they now are kind of starting to see a value in it in terms of being able to measure um, how the outbreak is spreading and crucially where it's spreading um, around the country. Um, yeah, I wonder with the outbreak already being so widespread in the Netherlands, whether or not we are going to see that be a useful thing here. But I think at this point, like nobody really knows, yeah, whose policies are kind of working the best. I mean, I think there's been a lot of discussion, like South Korea cut their stuff way down and that they had all of this, like, you know, and the way that they did that is through testing. But of course, South Korea took lots of other measures and like other countries that have done more widespread testing have also seen like increases. I mean, I think that these things are not, you know, people often always want like a magic bullet solution, right? That if we just could do more testing, the whole situation would get under control in the Netherlands. If this one Swiss company just gave up the patent for this one liquid, we would have the whole situation under control in the Netherlands. And the reality is, is that these things are incredibly complicated. And, you know, we just don't know because we are sort of figuring this stuff out as we go. It's literally been 100 years since we've had a pandemic on the scale of the one that we are facing right now. Yeah, and definitely people are, people are learning fast. So um, that, I suppose, is a positive sign. Speaking of more wholesome pastimes, no Eredivisie matches have been played since March the 8th, but the Dutch FA is still hoping to play out the football season. Sports clubs are of course closed and training sessions are cancelled because of the ban in meeting in groups of more than three. However, the cabinet has since clarified that these rules um, so far only apply to April the 6th. And with that in mind, the football authorities said it might be possible still to finish the season by the end of June. Um, so how, how exactly are they planning on doing that, Gordon? 
Well, they've um, put forward a couple of scenarios. Um, first of all, they could play the entire fixture program just in June. Um, that would be very tight. It means they would have to play twice a week, basically, because most teams have eight matches to catch up on. And the top, the top teams, Ajax, RZ and Feyenoord, have actually got to play nine. And then, of course, there's a cup final between Ajax and Utrecht as well. So some teams are having to play ten matches in a month, which is very, very... Uh, yeah, Sounds it, like fun. This, this is going to be pretty intense. Um, the alternative is that uh, if uh, the ban on groups and sports clubs uh, is lifted reasonably soon, or at least um, that the, the, the sports teams can go training together again, they might be able to play some matches in May in closed stadiums uh, if the ban on meeting groups is lifted or relaxed. So uh, with like no public then? Yeah, with no public, because then only need, need only about probably about 50 people um, to play a football match. In the worst case scenario, the current play base said they would just abandon the season and then they wouldn't, uh, there wouldn't be a title, uh, but they would award the European competition places on the basis of where the teams are at the moment. And that would mean Ajax goes straight into the Champions League group stage, as at Alkmaar go into the qualifying round, and there'd be Europa League places for Feyenoord, PSV Eindhoven and Willem II Tilburg. So a bit of a sweetener for Tilburg there, given that it was where the um, the outbreak of Corona in the Netherlands started. You should just give it to Tilburg. That's fine. <laughs> I'm yeah, fine with just that. Just let Tilburg play just in the Just let Champions Tilburg League. have it. Um, yeah, well, especially as, I mean, it looks as if Champions League football actually was one of the catalysts for the coronavirus outbreak. I mean, there was a match between Atalanta Bergamo and Valencia uh, about three weeks ago. And of course, Bergamo is now one of the places one, with one of the most concentrated outbreaks of coronavirus. And uh, a lot of um, doctors have speculated that because he had all those people in the football stadium, just as the outbreak was getting going, that, 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 that really accelerated the spread. Um, but coming back to domestic football, uh, if they do abandon the season, there won't be any relegation and the Eredivisie will be expanded to 20 teams for next season. So that's good news for RKC Valveik. So Brabant Club, Brabant Club's doing quite well out of this. All right. Well, I'm glad something's going well for poor Brabant. And what is the situation with the Olympics? Well, the International Olympic Committee has decided this week to postpone the Olympic Games uh, until next year. Uh, they were due to play, take place in Tokyo from July the 24th. Uh, the Dutch governing body NOCNSF has welcomed the decision. It said there needed to be a delay because sports clubs and gyms are shut, so athletes have got no time to prepare. Uh, it's worth saying that Tokyo was also awarded the Olympics in 1940, which of course had to be cancelled because um, the small match of World War II breaking out. It also held the Olympics in 1964, and of course that was the year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is another time we nearly all died. So maybe a message there for the International Olympic Committee. No more Olympics to Tokyo. That's it. You can't have them anymore. Uh, there was one major sporty event still taking place, um, and that was cancelled on Thursday. Do you know what it was? Australian rules football. Uh, well, no. Uh, it was actually the, quali the qualifying tournament for the World Chess Championship. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> uh, so that was going on in Yekaterinburg in Russia. Uh, obviously, chess is one of those games where it is quite easy to keep one and a half metres apart. Uh, Anish Giri is competing for the Netherlands. He's currently in joint third of the eight contenders. Um, but FIDE, which is the chess federation, decided to suspend the competition because Russia uh, shut its borders. So people couldn't travel in. They were worried the players couldn't travel out of the country anymore. Also, the writing was kind of on the wall when one of the leading contenders, Ion Nepomniachtchi, started coughing heavily during a press conference and he admitted he'd be playing for a quick draw because he wasn't feeling very well. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> so I think at that point they thought, uh, yeah. Um, it's time to it, cancel it, 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 it. It's time to shut down the chess tournament, yeah. So officially, no major sports tournaments taking place at all. Well, I know my uh, my brother-in-law has been watching uh, esports racing on television, which has been very amusing because there's nothing else to watch. If you appreciate Dutch News's efforts to keep you informed about what's going on while you're holed up in your house, keeping away from coronavirus, why not sponsor us on Patreon? 
We'll give you a shout out on the podcast to show our appreciation and we'll let you ask us a question about anything. Um, and we might try to answer it depending on whether yeah, our mood and that kind of thing. As you can maybe hear, we're also fighting a running battle for better sound quality while we're having to do the podcast at a safe distance from each other, which in our case is about 12 kilometers. Can't keep far enough away from uh, from Molly and Lisa times like this. It's true. And I have the only decent microphone in this relationship. So um, my sound quality is great and everyone else sucks. It's terrible. So we'd really like to invest some of your donations in better quality microphones for me and Paul, because as she just said, Molly is hogging the good mic. I'm hogging the good mic. It's true. <laughs> this week, we'd like to give a big thank you to new Patreon, Felipe Mendonca. Felipe doesn't have a question for us, but we're very grateful for your support. And if you want to ask us anything, we'll answer it next time. If you'd like to join our select band of socially distancing supporters and help Molly stockpile all the dog food in Delft, go to patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. So we have some non, uh, non-corona non news. So why don't you uh, hit us up with our first bit of non-corona news, Gordon? We do, indeed. This is about uh, Tunahun Kuzu, who stepped down as leader of the Denk political party at the weekend, citing personal reasons. Uh, Kuzu said he will not be available to lead the party into the next elections. Uh, gave, made this announcement on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. So Denk joins the CDR, Deis Zestef. Uh, as parties that are going to have to have leadership elections in the next 12 months. Uh, the party was founded by Kuzu and fellow MP Selchuk Ustuk in 2015, a year after they were expelled from the Labour Party for criticising the then Social Affairs Minister, Lodewijk Asser, over his int- integration policy. Kuzu, who's 38, will remain an MP until the next general election. He said he'd experienced the past years as a rollercoaster ride and said it had been innovating to build a movement representing groups that are not listened to sufficiently. The other side of the coin, for me, said Kazooie in a personal statement, as the face of Denk, is that it has had a big impact on my personal life. I had to ask myself whether I could still muster the energy I had when Denk was founded and if I could lead another campaign. Kuzu's place as leader of the party will be taken by Farid Azakan, but it is not yet clear if he'll lead the party in the next elections. Denk took three seats in the 2017 general election. I have mixed feelings about this because I think he's a jerk, um, but I also think that a lot of the reason that this has taken such a toll on him is because other people are racist jerks and have been a racist jerk to him. No, no winners here as far as I'm concerned. No. Absolutely not. Obviously, kind of normal politics is um, is kind of cancelled just at the moment. But uh, there is there is an election in uh, in twelve months' time, and there's going to be a lot of uh, shifting of, um, of of leadership chairs in the run up to that. So that's going to be interesting. Despite COVID-19 procedures, two trials moved forward this week. First, the MH17 trial was briefly reopened on Monday for a series of procedural decisions made by the court during a nearly two-week-long recess since the trial opened on March 9th. Four suspects, three Russians and one Ukrainian, are charged with causing the crash of flight MH17, resulting in the death of all 298 people on board. The four are alleged to have cooperated to obtain and deploy the book missile at the firing location with the aim of shooting down the aircraft. One of the requests put forward by lawyers for a large group of victims' relatives was to view the entire case file. That demand was rejected by the public prosecutor on security grounds. On Monday, the court said it would allow lawyers for the victims to see the summary of the case file, but the family members could not see that themselves. Uh, The court also requested more information from the prosecution, including a further explanation as to what could be gained by having the court decamp to the airbase in Hilzorina, where much of the wreckage is stored, to view the fuselage. A number of other decisions were postponed until the trial resumes in June to allow Olaf Pulato's defense time to respond. He is the only one who has retained counsel. The other three are being tried in absentia. The next hearing will be on June 8th, and we will see if that 
uh, goes forward as, as planned. So the MH17 trial went ahead this week, but there was another court case uh, which maybe had uh, slightly less um, impact on the international stage, right? Dutch public broadcaster VPRO does not have to issue a correction for paraphrasing the words of FAD leader Cherry Baudet, a court in Lelystad said this week. Cherry Baudet caused a stir in the House of Representatives last week by saying he thinks the EU has a preconceived plan to replace the white European race with African immigrants, said Natalie Wrighton on the Sunday afternoon political news show Boutenhoff. She was paraphrasing remarks made by the far-right politician in Parliament a week earlier during a debate. Baudet had, according to the official transcripts of the debate, said that the EU has, quote, turned out to be some kind of immigration machine and that it would, quote, set up ferries to transfer immigrants from Africa to Europe to weaken national identities so that there would be no more nation states. Following the program, Baudet called the statements outrageous and demanded that Vepero issue in a retraction. When the broadcaster refused to do so, he filed his suit. In paraphrasing his remarks, Wrighton used the words white, race, and replace, which had not been used by Baudet. While the court agreed that this phrasing wasn't literally accurate, they also concluded that it wasn't decisive. According to the European Court of Human Rights, the freedom of expression cannot easily be curtailed, the court said. Uh, the Bay Day was disappointed in the decision, but apparently they are so caught up in doing stuff related to coronavirus that they will not appeal. How very noble of them. I noticed the court also said that um, although um, Baudet didn't give uh, explicit references to race in that statement, if he looked in the context of other statements he made, which were much more overtly racist, then it was a reasonable conclusion to draw. Yes, exactly. Well, while most of the country is in the grip of coronavirus, in Drenthe, the biggest threat to rail services comes from a pair of storks. The long-billed birds have built their nest at Meppel Station on a pole above the railway line. Unfortunately, that pole is directly above a set of points, and rail engineers are worried that falling twigs from the nest could stop trains switching tracks. The nest has already been removed once, but the storks were not to be deterred and built it again. ProRail's worried because storks are a protected species in the Netherlands, and once eggs have been laid in the nest, they can't disturb it. So ProRail has been trying in vain to lure the storks to another spot near the local hospital, but the storks have wisely kept away from that. Five nesting poles have been put up 12 kilometres away in Kukanga, but the birds are not backing down. They love to do their own thing, stork expert Fritz Koopman told Omroep Drenthe, and I'm so pleased to see that Drenthe has its very own stork expert. It's funny because, you know, people who live in the north of the Netherlands are known for being stubborn. And apparently it's not just the people, it's also the birds. <laughs> That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at Dutch News NL. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. You'll earn yourself a free shout out. My thanks to Gordon Derrick. I hope Paul Paters is still alive out there. I'm Molly Quell, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>